This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Karen Flotty is an applied theologian, the volunteer co-chair of the Central Reform Congregation Mitzvah Garden and a founding staff member of the Justice Gardeners in St. Louis, Missouri. She joins us today to share more about how the cycle of Jewish holidays and festivals is deeply rooted in the cycles of the earth, as illustrated in this season of two be Shavat, the new year of the trees, celebrated in winter as the sap is just beginning to stir again in the trees of the northern hemisphere. She shares as well what we can all learn from this as gardeners and humans. Welcome, Karen. Thank you for inviting me, Jennifer. It's a delight. So I'd love to have you start off with where we just were started. Give us your titles and your succinct version of what you do as it relates to gardening and plants professionally and personally right now, Karen. Okay, so I serve as volunteer co-chair for the Central Reformer CRC Mitzvah Farm. And in that capacity, we grow organic produce determined by the clients of a neighboring food pantry at Trinity Episcopal Church called Trinity Food Ministry, what their guests want to eat. We produce 1,200 to 1,500 pounds of food annually, all for donation. I also just founded with a small team of folks, an organization called Justice Gardeners. We have developed a model of community justice based on gardening that we are hoping to invite people to consider and become part of this movement to address many different aspects of environmental, economic, racial justice in our nation through the act of communal gardening. I also am a home gardener and produce some of our food on our land here in a tiny urban lot in St. Louis. Well, that is kind of a perfect trifecta right there of engagement on a spiritual and home-based personal and larger world connection. Tell us a little bit about your own history, where you were born and raised, and the people and places and plants that might have grown you into a person for whom this kind of engagement would be an important value, Karen. What a beautiful and wonderful question. Um, So I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. My mother was grew up in St. Genevieve, Missouri, which is about 60 miles south of St. Louis. Both um, communities are located on the banks of the Mississippi River. The Missouri and the Mississippi rivers come together just north of St. Louis. So we live in this vast land of waterways that drain into both. And this kind of um, brilliant ecosystem that is really determined by river. We are one of the largest flyways for migratory birds in the United States, I think second only to the Cape May East Coast flyway. And if you look at a hydrology map of the rivers in the United States, you really see this image of an extraordinary tree which drains into the Mississippi. And the Mississippi is kind of like the trunk branching into the roots down in the Delta into the Gulf. It's just an extraordinary image. So this is kind of the land and place that I grew up in. My mother's mother grew the majority of her food on an urban lot. She was in town, not on a farm in St. Genevieve. They began this practice back probably in the 20s. And so I was born in 1962, and they were still growing the majority of their food. They had less than a quarter of an acre, right? But it was crammed with gardens and fruit bearing plants and trees. And in many ends, amazing flower gardens. And so that was really my playground as a kid, where I really learned about the whole cycle of planting, 
growing, preserving. My grandmother is the one who taught me about seed saving and I would help her save seeds, primarily marigolds. My father loved nature and his family lived in the extreme end of North City on a bluff overlooking the Mississippi River. He and his family, they had victory gardens, very large victory gardens when he was growing up. So my parents were born in 1928, and 1930. And that really, you know, grew a love of gardening in my father. He also loved nature. He loved the rivers of Missouri. So most of our vacations as family, when I was a child, were spent at rivers or lakes, fishing, catching tadpoles, catching crawfish, um, and just really immersing ourselves in nature. So I also learned quite young how to fish and preserve the catch and bring it home. We often ate fish all winter from fishing trips that we took in the summer. So I grew up really immersed in the natural world and in growing. And then I was also part of Girl Scouts. And as I was thinking about our time this morning, the image of this tree, I would go to this day camp, right, in West County, St. Louis area, that had the most enormous tree. I was in love with that tree. Um, and it was the singing tree. Like we would gather, that's where we would go um, when we arrived at camp and there would be singing until we were ready to go off into the woods, which was across this vast field. And we would nestle in this tree's roots. Like I would say this tree was so large, 30 or more of us could actually sit among her roots. Um, as part of this whole singing experience at the beginning and the ending of each day. My parents also, our house was on a wooded lot. And so I just spent a lot of time hanging out underneath those trees as a kid. So I hold a master's in Catholic theology. I was raised Catholic and converted to Judaism four years ago. And during my master's, I studied with a man by the name of Reverend Dr. Samuel Torvind. He taught liturgy and church history. He dove deep into how liturgy and religious expression emerges from our engagement with the earth that we are one with, that we are part of, this vast ecosystem. And I finally found a formal language to really understand my experiences of divinity and spirituality so rooted in nature as a child. More so than church or anything else, it was those experiences of being immersed in the rivers, in the gardens, in this whole sense of wonder and awe and peace and calm, actually, of being in nature. So where did you go next? What, what happened after your master's in theology? I did a lot of reading. Like, I became very fascinated with traditional and cultural foodways and did a lot of reading, particularly through the Smithsonian series on folk traditions. And they produced a number of cookbooks that traced the historical roots of different regions cooking traditions. I read this kind of thing compulsively. I just find it fascinating how cultures communicate through food, fuse it into new traditions, cultural sharing that coming here and having many different cultures come to this land and how those food ways change and evolve um, fascinates me both as a student of history and as a, as a grower. And one of the things that became very clear as I was doing that reading is that when you look at the old recipes, they're rooted in what's in season. They're not rooted in grocery store cooking. So that was one strand that really kind of informs my work today. Um, another piece is I ended up working as um, executive director of a small Catholic feminist organization that was funding women-led projects throughout the Americas. And many, many of the projects that we were funding were women 
who were trying to deal with environmental degradation in their communities of one kind or another. Seeing and experiencing these women doing this incredibly small, local, right, and sustainable ways of impacting their communities while mitigating, right, this horrible environmental degradation totally just expanded my mind and imagination. Um, it was an amazing job. Another piece during this period, we were living in New Jersey um, and I became pregnant with my son who's turning 15. And the experience of being pregnant, I was pregnant at an advanced age, but understanding my body as an ecosystem for another human being growing within. And then during nursing, how careful one has to be with one's body and what goes in. Physically, that whole understanding of what the earth experiences when we do things that harm her. And understanding that at an experiential level was really, really powerful. Also during that time, I read Winona LaDuke's book, All Our Relations, where she looks at what tribes all over the U.S. are doing in terms of the environment in their region. Again, small, sustainable, local, and high impact. And when I moved home, actually, we moved back here when my son was nine months. I read Barbara Kingsolver's Animal Vegetable Miracle. That was also transformative. And we became primary locavores um, at that point. One thing that was exploding in St. Louis at that moment was also our own local food systems and the farmer's market community, which has continued to expand. And we made a huge commitment for a long time. That kind of drifted. And my son two years ago said, Mom, we've got to do something about climate crisis and we got to join a CSA. So we joined a, a CSA that sources everything here as part of that lifestyle. Wow. Wow. What a lot of threads uh, you have pulling you in <laughs> basically the same direction, which is uh, which is which is great to not only have that be the case, but to also have you be a person who is listening to and recognizing those callings as they are presented to you. I would love to have you unpack a little bit for us. Um, you, There are a couple of recurring motifs through the stories that you have just shared with us, Karen. And one of them has to do with trees and dendritic branching and um, association and relationship from riverways and uh, estuarial relationship to the trees of your Girl Scout years to the idea of a tree of life. And you mentioned your recurring attraction and calling to Jewish faith and tradition and Judaism as an intellectual concept or cosmology. And you also mentioned that you converted to Judaism four years ago. Will you, will you take us down this path a little more deeply? Because we are in a moment of celebrating a, a holiday in the Jewish tradition of to be Shavat, which is the new year or birthday of the trees. And we will get into that more deeply. But first, take us on your path to conversion, Karen. Okay, so I want to mention before I step on that path that one of the other trees in my childhood is my father threw a peach out in the yard when my brother was an infant. And it grew into this vast tree that gave us cling-free peaches. So I grew up under this tree of incredible abundance that we ate from all winter because my mother froze them. So that is, and I've been the tree of life um, has been really, I think, one of my deepest understandings um, or spiritual connections um, throughout my life. So my path to con 
version started many years ago. Like I said, in high school, I fell in love with Judaism in a world religions theology class at my all-girls Catholic high school. And I deepened that learning through graduate school and then read constantly about Judaism from that point forward. I moved home to St. Louis and I met this extraordinary woman. One day I was sitting with my son and he, he was nine months. He vocalized and she looked up in the air. It was an older woman walking a dog down the block. She was probably in her early 60s at that point and said, was that a duck? And I said, no, it was my son. And we ended up in a conversation and became fast friends, I think, in that moment. And I don't know what we recognized with each other, in each other. But Sheila um, lived part-time here and part-time in New York City. She was Jewish and a member of Central Reform Congregation. She was a civil rights activist. She was also a biblical scholar, where she dove also deep into a lot of the natural cycles and rhythms that inform the Hebrew scriptures, especially in a feminist context. So we had many conversations about her work in the Hebrew scriptures. But when I went to a bar mitzvah for a friend's child, at CRC, I knew I was home. And I asked Sheila, can I come to High Holy Days with you? And she said, yes. And I knew it was the direction I needed to go. It took a couple of years after that to decide that having a degree in theology and considering myself an applied theologian, having a tradition for my son to engage with those experiences of wonder the experiences of what Paul Tillich calls ultimate questions of meaning, the limits of life, death, birth. I knew at CRC that this could be a path forward. But it was, I don't know, the year to following that, that my husband and I were actually in our home garden working to plant in springtime during Easter Pesach week. And I'm literally bare feet with my feet in the mud. And, you know, the story of Pesach is you they're crossing the Red Sea, right, to leave this narrow place of Mitzrayim, of oppression. And there's really a question at the edge of the Red Sea, are you going to move forward? Are you going to stay stuck in the mud, literally in the bottom of the riverbed? I said to my husband, I figure I can either stay stuck where I am, or I can move forward. And I'm called to move forward and convert to Judaism. And he said, all right, I'll be your Shabbos boy. And what does that mean? <laughs> so back in the long ago, when people lived, like we learned about this at the um, Tenement Museum in New York, that in um, apartment buildings, people who were not Jewish would often do small tasks that were necessary to life, but barred by Jewish law on Shabbat. So the lighting of a fire, turning on a flame, and this is in a time where if your gas went out in your apartment, it would be dangerous, right, to not have that on, uh, which would also be allowed, like if it, was, if it was necessary to preserve life, it would be allowed by Jewish law, but there were people who would do small tasks to make things happen for Jewish people who were um, Shomer Shabbat or Shabbat observant. So my husband is basically saying, I'm gonna give you the joy of Shabbat every week by taking on the work of the household so you can rest, is what he was saying. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Karen Flotty is an applied theologian and the volunteer co-chair of the Central Reform Congregation's Mitzvah Garden in St. Louis, sharing with us today more about the correlations between the cycles of the earth and the annual cycle of Jewish festivals and holidays tied to them. Stay with us. We'll be right back for more. Hey, it's Jennifer. In this deep stillness, cold, and low light of winter, 
I love the idea that the root systems of the trees that companion us and canopy over us on this earth are beginning to stir deep down in the ground beneath us, triggered by light as well as by temperature. To acknowledge all that is unseen or sensed by our most immediate observations seems like a good practice worth cultivating. I am not a person of religious affiliation. I studied comparative religion and literature in school, and I have a huge interest in the study of these deeply held beliefs in our world. I am, though, a person of deep faith, and for me, just as Karen's earliest experiences, my faith and divinity itself is planted and rooted and raised in the garden. Gardening is, after all, first and foremost, an act of relationship and faith in the possibility inherent in growing. We're back now to our conversation with Karen Flotty, exploring the history and meaning of the Jewish festival cycle. As we left off, Karen had shared with us her decision to convert to Judaism. During her conversion process, her mentor and friend Sheila became ill, and Karen made a fairly quick decision to receive Torah, thereby finalizing conversion. Sheila was able to be present for this final step, but died the next summer. In the process of studying for receiving the Torah, Karen first encountered Rabbi Arthur Waskow. As she describes, he's one of the great leaders of the Jewish renewal movement. And during this time, she read his book, Seasons of Our Joy. In this book in particular, Rabbi Waskow dives deeply into the history and traditions of each of the Jewish holidays and festivals and traces them back to their earth-based and earth-rhythms-based origins and associations. In this work, Karen shares that Rabbi Waskow says, quote, Jewish festivals are born out of the love affair between Mother Earth and her children, end quote. In this work, Rabbi Waskow also clarifies that the Jewish word for earth and the Jewish word for human have the same root, Adam, and that the Genesis story in which God forms Adam out of a scoop of earth makes it clear that we are not separate from earth's ecosystem, rather, we are born from it. Reading that book, tying it with the formal language I learned right from Reverend Dr. Torvind, I really knew I was home in a radical way because it really spoke to my deepest understandings of how our spirituality emerges out of our experience of living in this ecosystem at our deepest levels. So describe to us the holiday that is to be Shabbat. So let me step back slightly. The entire Jewish festival cycle, with the exception of some what are called historical holidays, are rooted completely in Earth's natural cycles, especially growing cycles. Tubishvat, the new year of the trees or the birthday of the trees, goes back to, there's two layers of it in Jewish practice. This goes back to the time of the temple when a certain tithe was expected off of crops to the temple, which had a twofold purpose. So first of all, that tithe supported those who had to professionally did the work of the temple. So it fed them. The other portion of that tithe actually went out to feed those in need. So I would say one of the central ethical pieces of Judaism is how we treat the widow, the orphan, the stranger. The birthday of the trees, it was kind of like personal property tax. Like once a year, you tell what property you owned, for example, on January 1st, that you were taxed for in the coming year. So the trees, no matter what time you planted them, they all turned one that year on the new year of the trees. 
And so this was because fruit could not be tied from those trees until they were three years old. After the destruction of the temple and in the diaspora, Judaism moves from a practice focused on temple to focused on home and synagogue. The Kabbalists, which are mystics in the 15th and 16th centuries, take the form of of a Seder, which means order. A Passover Seder is an order to reflect on traditions and story. So they adapt the form of a Seder to do a Seder around Tubishvat. So Tubishvat, it's a legal date. So Tubishvat literally means the 15th of the month of Shabbat. The Kabbalists take this date and create this Seder to look at spiritual characteristics that fit with their mystical understanding of the universe, their cosmology. So they take the tree of life. And so they look at divinity or God as expressing God's self into the world as an inverted tree with the roots in the heavens. And I just put air quotes around that. Um, and the branches are the animations of the holy qualities of God or divinity falling into the earth, spilling into the earth. Mm -hmm. So this Seder uses four types of fruits and it's done in four different types of glasses of wine that teach us things about our own spirituality, how that is linked to both the emanations of divinity in the earth. These are things like compassion and wisdom, right? These are justice or what these emanations are. But it's also about fructifying the tree, that we do the spiritual work at this time in this Seder to actually encourage the trees to bloom and fruit. So that reflects that our spiritual work actually impacts the physical world. And the physical world, it gets into that interbreathing, right, between that our spiritual work is necessary. Yes. And so that there's this real mutual feeding that actually happens at the Seder. And so the fruits, they represent four different worlds. And this is a key part of this Kabbalistic thing, the physical world around us, the world of feelings and emotions, the world of knowledge and of the mind, and then the world of spirituality. Mm -hmm. We eat these fruits, the physical world is hard on the outside and soft in the inside. It's kind of this notion that sometimes you have to protect yourself a little bit mm -hmm. while maintaining your soft inside. A soft outside and hard inside, this is the world of feeling. I did a Seder with the kids. You know, I talk about how others are soft outside. And sometimes our hard hearts can hurt other people. Okay. And then the world of completely of knowing is completely soft and edible. So we eat fruits from that are traditional to Israel often. Okay. Hard outside and soft inside is often like an orange or something with a peel. Soft outside and hard inside is the date. Okay. And completely soft and edible is like a fig. And then the world of being or the world of spirituality is intangible. And so it's usually a scent. Mm like cinnamon or chocolate. And it all focuses on fruits of the trees. Hmm. It's, it's a very tree focused. Okay. Then the four cups of wine that are part of the Seder, and there's a series of readings that go with this. So you run the seasons too through this. Uh, okay. The white is for winter when everything is fallow. Then a tinge of pink for spring. So you begin blending and then rose for summer and red for autumn, the full, right, flowering mm. of the fruits. Yeah. Different types of reflections and satyrs are written to go with this basic form. So like with the kids, we do one thing. With adults, we do another. Mm -hmm. One of the joys of Judaism is you're encouraged to play with mm. the rituals to bring meaning and bring them into dialogue with contemporary life. Nice. So it's as evolutionarily uh, and co-evolutionarily adapting and responding as our plants and our planet and our gardens are. Yes, absolutely. So here's some of the interesting 
things that I have learned. So we have an orchard as part of the CRC Mitzvah Farm. There's a great organization here in town called Gateway Greening. We were one of their first pilot orchards. They do community gardens and now they're bringing in community orchard. We have now a dozen apple and pear trees. The first year that we had these trees, Dean, the coordinator at Gateway Greening said, hey, we have to have our pruning workshop. Can we do it at CRC? Well, it turns out that this was scheduled for the weekend of Tubishvat. And so during this, Dean begins talking about current orchard practices that we don't harvest fruit from the tree for three years. Ah. And the reason behind that is so that it grows deep, solid roots, and that you create the structure for it to thrive before it begins fruit bearing. So it takes all of the energy that it would put out in fruit to creating a healthy root system and structure. Right. And that the time of Tubishvat is the time that you actually prune to actually fructify them. Like you're doing all of this work and we, we use holistic organic sprays to help the trees fight off pests and things. All of that work starts at Tubishvat just speaks to how deep the Jewish rhythm of spirituality is is embedded in earth cycles. Then I was reading Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, where she is talking about the rise of sap. Yes. Begins when the snow just kind of shifts back, right, from the, the trunks of the tree. It is also the time of Tibishvat. So the trees are actually, the sap is actually rising as we're doing the Seder as we're doing this work. Yes. Um, and then last year, so one of the other traditions around Tubishvat, last year, CRC asked me to do a little teaching on Tubishvat. And it really struck me. So it's traditional to plant parsley in preparation for Passover. Mm -hmm. Um and one of the things that I've learned both from Rabbi Arthur and Rabbi Randy is about how these festivals actually interlink and that there's this deeper spiritual journey that we are engaged with through the cycles of the earth and through recognizing those cycles through our holidays, right? Both Rabbi Randy and Rabbi Arthur talk about Torah of the earth and what that has to teach us. Um, Torah, by the way, the Torah is referred to as the Eis Chaim, or the tree of life. Yeah. We plant parsley in preparation for Passover in this like wintry moment. And it struck me that it's really at this point, if we read the Torah of the earth really deeply about what's going on at Tubishvat, the trees are stirring awake. Mm -hmm. We can't see it, but there's something stirring within as the sap begins to rise, which will eventually become fruit. The buds are already on the tree, and this, but the sap needs to nourish it. So this whole new moment begins emerging really in the dark of the earth. And then this whole notion of pruning, what do we need to clear? What do we need to prune away to take off the dead wood, to really clear the space for this new growth. So for me, that connection is we have to begin doing this work and planting the seed of parsley because parsley is the first thing that we eat at the Passover Seder. That, so it, we have to do this spiritual work in order to really embrace um, that first taste of liberation. So we move from seed to full flowering, from slavery to liberation. So there's this beautiful interplay for me in all of the, the holidays and the seasons. And they each teach us a different, different piece of what we need to do, I think, kind of annual spiritual work. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Karen Flotty is an applied theologian and the volunteer co-chair of the Central Reform Congregation Synagogue's Mitzvah Garden in St. Louis, Missouri. She's sharing with us today more about the correlation between the cycles of the earth and the annual cycle of Jewish festivals and holidays. Stay with us. We'll be right back for more. 
Okay, so thinking out loud this week and riffing off of my first break's thoughts to you on faith, I am struck by Karen's noting her strong desire to provide a spiritual structure and community for her son. Hearing this, I was immediately struck by the correlation between this and many people's instinct to begin gardening when they first have their own home and when they start a family and have children. Faith is important to all of us in some way. We all express it in our own ways, and these ways are myriad. Ritual is also important. It orients us. It guides us. And ritual is something that with the decline of people belonging to the traditional organized religions or or being observant within these religions, it occurs to me that our gardens are yet again the perfect mentors to us, to us all, in reintegrating meaningful life-giving ritual into our days and seasons. Rituals of listening, of appreciating, of sowing, of caring for, of watering, of feeding, of harvesting and pruning, and celebrating and meditating every day that we have the privilege of growing with our plant and land companions. So today, I celebrate the new year of the trees and the stirring of the healthy root systems on which we are so dependent. Happy to be Shabbat. We're back now to our conversation with Karen Floaty, exploring the history and meaning of the Jewish festival cycles. When we went into the break, Karen had described and situated the importance of Tubi Shavat in the calendar year and the growing year. As we come back, she shares more about the importance of the mitzvah garden and its role at the congregation for community connection, engagement, and education. We have a 32-foot in-ground plot and six raised beds and then this orchard. So we're not truly a farm on that scale. We are in the city of St. Louis in an urban location, but we are nearly adjacent to a forest park, which is one of the largest urban parks in the U.S. We're one of the largest green spaces in our broader neighborhood in St. Louis at Central Reform Congregation. The Mitzvah Farm really grew out of a process called Green Faith, promoting congregations to really assess everything that they are doing in terms of being more ecologically sensitive and healing the earth. So the garden grows up out of a number of efforts that are growing for food justice in this neighborhood. And I do want to touch a little bit on the story of how I got involved. So the year that I converted that following spring, my father had been, had had a stroke and we needed, you know, full-time nursing care. So he had moved into a nursing residential care facility. And my sister had had a a very aggressive breast cancer. And in spring of that year, in March, she decided to go on to hospice. And my good friend, Sheila Michaels, also went terminally ill at the same time about that my sister moved to hospice. And I was very involved in my sister's care. After the devastation, right, of, so Sheila and my sister died two months apart on the 22nd of April and June. So Sheila died at the summer solstice and my sister died actually right near Pesach. You know, I took a friend to services with me on Friday evenings who does not drive. And we have a ONAG or community gathering afterwards where people linger and chat and, you know, there's refreshments. And I just could not cope with being inside at that point, you know, and I didn't want to tell my friend, oh, we had to leave right away. So I would go out back of the synagogue and sit by the garden until he was ready to go. And it became very clear that the garden was inviting me to get involved. 
while I would sit there. It was a place of great solace and comfort and peace during those immediate raw days of grief. In fact, nature for me was the way that I walked through the whole mourning process around both of those losses that year. Um, I could barely stand to stay inside. And when I got overwhelmed, I would go to Forest Park. There's a Jewish practice of doing Kaddish, which is a prayer that you do for a year for a loss like a sister. Um, many people go to a daily minion to do this. It's supposed to be done with 10 people. And I did not, a minion is 10 people praying together. I could not find, I could not find a minion that would work with my schedule to do that. So I would often go to Forest Park and do Mourner's Kaddish at the Grand Basin in the park which is this beautiful space below our art museum and it's lined with trees. Mm. And my line was, I was doing Mourner's Kaddish with a minion of trees. Mm. But it became very clear as I would sit out there week after week that the garden was like, come on, you wanna play, come, come on. So I volunteered to help. So we decided to actually create a container where we had communal gardening happening. So we decided that Sunday evenings, we were going to put out a call, come volunteer. So it began just growing this tremendous energy. We had about 10 people that would show up every week and help with the work. And this amazing community grew up around the garden that first year. And, you know, there's something really powerful about engaging it with the earth in that way, actually literally physically getting into the soil yeah. and growing things and caring for living things and working alongside of each other. Mm. People would have, you know, quiet conversations. It's not like we were doing therapy at the garden or anything like that, but I find out through that season that the majority of us, had suffered tremendous loss in the last year. Now, through the season, some of those folks have stayed and some of those folks have gone on because what, you know, you know, other things in life, other energies are, we were the community for that moment. Yeah. That strengthened, that healed. Mm. That piece has been just extraordinary to see this really beautifully supportive mutually learning community develop around that garden. Yes. One of the incredible pieces about it too, is we began integrating it more into congregational life. So we have the kids come out, the religious and kids. I do experiences with them. Watching them engage with the garden is absolute magic. So I took the first and second graders out year ago fall and they were so excited. And we have this sculpture at the corner of our lot, which is on one of the busiest streets in the city, Kings Highway. And it's full of noise. And it's this really great moment of connection with our broader city, you know, and, and Central Reform Congregation is located on what's called the Del Mar Divide in St. Louis, where this wealthy, by and large, white neighborhood abuts this incredible urban decline and poverty and largely Black neighborhood. So this corner of our, our synagogue just like so connects us with that broader community. But this sculpture on it is what is called a broken vessel. So this goes back to the Kabbalists where you know, the emanations shatter. And that this whole notion of tikkun olam, of rebuilding the world has to do with repairing these vessels of things like justice and loving kindness and wisdom. So Rabbi Susan has this practice of taking the kids out there and chanting the Shema, which is a central prayer of unity. Hero Israel, um, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. It speaks really of our unity mm. in our ecosystem with all of it. So I'm in there with the kids and I'm like, okay, let's chant the Shema. And I said, and these are first graders, right? First and second graders. I said, what does this mean to you? And this kid says to me, says to the whole group, you know what I know? I know that there are things like roots 
that none of us can see that go out from our feet and connect us to every other person in the world. Mm. And our orchard kind of surrounds this sculpture. And it was just, so that kind of learning with the kids where we can, you know, we can talk about hunger and why we grow for families that are hungry. We can teach them about how to care for the earth more reverently. It's so exciting and wonderful. And the kids just literally, they can hardly keep themselves from touching the plants. I, I always say they yeah. want to roll around in the gardens <laughs> and engage. And, you know, we had figs, fig bushes, and there was a fresh fig. And so they were so fascinated. I'm like, okay, so these are really delicate and they're kind of fuzzy. So I said, hold out your hand and be really gentle. Like it's a little, you know, baby animal, right? So I took it off and to watch them hand it so gently one to another and they each petted it. <laughs> Love it. You know, with a yeah. little finger, it was just yeah. fabulous. So um, that has just been such a wonderful, rich thing. And then we actually tie it into services. We bring food in and during Sukkot and actually do one of our, you know, our own eggs after services where we serve some of the food and talk about food justice and environmental and racial justice. Another outgrowth for the synagogue itself has been really this deep understanding that we need to engage many of our practices as, as Jews in this land. And so we engaged in a landscape design process to activate and look at ways that we could use this beautiful yet small and large piece of, of land um, to practice and interpret and understand um, our tradition more deeply. Um, we're in the midst of implementing that right now, but what we're doing, we have a walking labyrinth, a labyrinth meditation, right? That's based on a Jericho model. Mm -hmm. We're creating spaces for meditation, for worship, for learning, for being all throughout the property. So one of Rabbi Susan's pieces long ago was to create a fitness course for the soul where you actually have meditation points in our landscape. That has been redesigned to start at the sculpture, engaged with the city, move through this incredible land in terms of how the shade, the sun, the sound, um, you walk through the orchard and then a strand of trees through the farm and then to the labyrinth and then back out engaging with the city. This integration of the the land and the seasons and the gardens with your synagogue and congregations interweaving of, of these parts of, of most, well, parts of life is really, um, you know, everything that I think gardens can be to people and to communities of people. They are, they are grounding and um, end uplifting at the same time. When you look at your work, Karen, as a theologian, but also just as a gardener interconnected to the, the trees of your place specifically, I think, I, I think there's something really powerful about, you know, starting off a new season and a new year, working on these structural connectors between the earth and the sky, between us and food, between water and soil, between, you know, they are, they are the conduits for so much. And to work on them as one of the first aspects to care for them and tend them and think about them. And that there's something just so powerful about that. And so I, I guess what I would like is for you to end for us today with what you see as the great importance of recombining our land care with our with our spiritual care why does this matter in our biggest world why does this matter if you're jewish or not jewish that this this reintegration 
happens and is supported and continues, Karen? I think it is through really the act of communal gardening. And by communal gardening, um, that's when you come together to garden for a purpose or any gardening, right? Because any garden, but especially in this communal format that we use at the CRC Mitzvah Farm and in Justice Gardeners, you understand yourself as part of a much larger whole than our lives lived behind walls often tell us. We can become walled off quite literally. We understand the larger story from which we come and where we're going. We understand growth cycles and death cycles as part of that larger story of meaning. We understand at a fully embodied level, like it's, it's body, mind, spirit, heart, soul, all of it how interconnected we are, not only to each other, to this ecosystem of which we are born and to which we will return when we ourselves die. And really that the wholeness of the entire ecosystem depends on the wholeness of each and every member of that ecosystem. Mm -hmm of that community. And working in a garden, you understand that in a gentle, beautiful way that opens up your heart, your mind, your soul, and your body to that broader story of what is the health and wholeness of my community? How can I be a better actor? How do I need to care for myself better? Right. And then how can I make sure that everybody is a part of that community receives what they need for their fullness, their wholeness and their health. And I think it's through that gardening that we see it's possible actually to do that work in a way that embraces the whole and the health of everyone. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It has been illuminating and a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Jennifer. It has been a joy and a delight to speak with you this morning. Karen Floaty is an applied theologian, a member of the Jewish Central Reform Congregation Synagogue in the middle of St. Louis, Missouri. She is the volunteer co-chair for the congregation's mitzvah garden, the fruit, vegetables, flowers, beehives, and honey of which are cultivated to support the congregation community in body and soul, and to intertwine the congregation with the larger St. Louis community grounded on the land they live with. Karen is also a founding staff member of the Justice Gardeners. Make sure to follow her work through the links in the notes on today's episode at CultivatingPlace.com. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. Our on-air producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.